Hey everyone, welcome back to A Call to Lead. Today, you're gonna hear from Malcolm Gladwell. I had the opportunity to sit down with Malcolm and have a great conversation in front of a live audience. So we tried something different this time. As you know, he's a brilliant author. His perspectives are so thought-provoking. And you know what? He is very funny and it made for a, a great conversation. I can't wait for you to listen. I look forward to your feedback. And we're gonna try something different. We had so much great content and some amazing questions from the audience that we're gonna create a bonus episode and we'll release that in the coming days as well. We've got a fantastic slate of episodes coming up, so stay tuned. You're listening to A Call to Lead, a different kind of leadership podcast, brought to you by SAP, the world's largest provider of enterprise application software. SAP engineers solutions to help companies become best-run businesses by transforming industries, growing economies, lifting up societies, and sustaining our environment because it's the best-run businesses that make the world run better. And now, your host, Jennifer Morgan. There's a quote you have, and I love it because I think it speaks to something that we all see every day. We have, as human beings, a storytelling problem. We're a bit too quick to come up with explanations for things we don't really have an explanation for. And it seems like every day people are, you know, mm-hmm. making a career out of doing that. Mm-hmm. What do you mean uh, by that? Well, there's a million ways to go from there. But um, one, I wrote that a long time ago. And since I wrote that, I've sort of been playing with that idea in different ways. But one part of that that has fascinated me recently is um, I'm really struck by how long it takes us, all of us, um, to figure out what change means. So, which is a version of what I was just saying, that... Um, we come to these conclusions about what something means, and then, but way too quickly. We don't, we have, we're sort of fooled by the pace of technological change into thinking that just because technology is moving really quickly, our explanations should have to keep pace. But in fact, what's really striking about technology is how often the technical side um, outruns the kind of explanatory side. And let me give you some examples. Um, my favorite example is an old one, which is that for the first 30 years or so of the life of the telephone, telephone companies actively tried to discourage what they called social uses of the telephone. They really didn't want people gossiping, sharing in personal stuff. They didn't want women using them because they thought women would sort of trivialize it. They thought it was a business instrument. And it took them until the 1920s when the Telephone starts to, telephone doesn't really take off. It's around for decades. It's not taking off. And finally, in the 20s, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe the thing that we've been actively discouraging is what this technology is all about. And it's not because they're dumb. It's because the technology is so new and weird that it actually takes a generation to understand what it's for, right? So similarly, I have in my pocket this, which we all remember, a BlackBerry. It takes, you know, no one has these anymore except for me. Um, but it, and it, they're considered sort of obsolete. And they're considered obsolete because, not because there's anything wrong with the concept, but because it took us a generation to figure out what we wanted a smartphone for. Turns out it, we didn't really want it just to do email. We wanted it to take pictures, essentially, and, you know, surf, surf Twitter. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, it, mm-hmm. whatever things we do now, nothing. In, so that, that sort of... 
that notion is really interesting. And then there's sort of more, I remember reading this really fascinating book about uh, what's called the Revolution in Military Affairs, which is the RMA, which is the transformation, the digital transformation of modern warfare, which is really pioneered by Israel in the 80s. And Israel is the first to put in place all of the, the kind of components of modern warfare, which are, there's three of them, drones, precision guided missiles, and command and control centers, where you have a, like a AWACS plane in the sky that controls everything. Israel puts all this stuff together in the early 80s. They invent none of it. All of the technology was invented 20 years earlier in the Vietnam War by Americans. And the idea of putting those things together was invented by the Soviets in the early 70s. But no one sort of, Israel is the first person, first country to kind of like figure out, oh no, wait a minute. The Soviets had this sort of crazy idea and the Americans have all these like weird technologies. And like 15 years passes and Israel finally figures out, you know what, that would be really effective in fighting an air battle in southern Lebanon, right? So it's like mm -hmm. the technology comes here and the explanation of what it means is delayed always by a generation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that delay is getting shorter. If anything, the delay is getting longer. Really? Um, because as the technologies get more complicated and more interconnected, mm -hmm. and then it makes sense that it would take us longer to figure out what mm -hmm. they mean. Does anyone really know what the Internet of Things looks like? Like, conceptually, we know we're going we're gonna to digitize all these objects, but the implications of that are so complex and right. complicated that anyone who tells you they know now what it's going to look like is lying, right? Or they're fantasizing. Mm -hmm. We have no clue. And that's not a bad thing. That's mm -hmm. actually a kind of wonderful thing. Um, but it says the hard part... Of all in all these situations is the is the explanatory part, right? Yeah. Um, so so in business, then you know, if you think about a lot of the folks in this room, and every CEO, every board is focused on technology. To, that's driving the strategy. So it's kind of counter to what you just said, right? Is it used to be let's come up with a strategy and what technology supports that, and now that paradigm has shifted in terms of how businesses are focused on that. Mm -hmm that kind of contradicts some of what, what we're talking about here. And it'll be interesting to see how does that manifest itself going forward. Yeah. Although, I mean, it does in a way, but it also, it says, this is why the person who's, I mean, not to, I'm dipping into your world and a world I know nothing about, but, um, but it does say that the person who supplies you with your technology mm -hmm. is not simply, is not there to give you some commodity off the shelf. Right. That the they are also there to help you to understand what the technology right. means. Right. And that part may be more important in the end than the thing that they're selling mm -hmm. you, right? Mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the the actual software they're right. selling you at the beginning. Right. The outcomes. The, yeah. That that is, you know, that's the sort of um that would be the lesson I would draw from yeah. that. Yeah. So one of the conversations we had, another big topic that I feel like a lot of folks are 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 focused on is is talent. Mm-hmm. Right, and we talk about culture and talent and leadership and all these various topics. And you and I were talking about, all right, you hear about disruption in terms of business models and technology and all that. And you hear people talking about talent, but not necessarily about how are we maybe disrupting the norms around the profiles that mm -hmm. we view as successful or necessary for yeah. certain talent. What, yeah. do you, what are your thoughts there? Well, this, so this is something I brought up because I've been doing for my podcast this season uh, 
two episodes about the LSAT, which really fascinates me. And I ended up taking the LSAT um, a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. With uh, quite disastrous results, which I won't get into. (laughs) But um, what interests me is the law, the legal profession has a kind of more extreme version of uh, a kind of, I don't want to use the word snobbishness, that many professions have, which is they think they have a very good handle on where talent comes from. Mm -hmm. So if you go on, it's quite fascinating, if you go on the website of any big law firm, Mm -hmm. they tell you the the educational pedigree of everyone who works there on the site. Like, which I find so astonishing. And if you talk to any recruiter for a big law firm, they will tell you they only recruit from graduates of what they call top 14 schools. The top, right? Mm -hmm. If you go to, there is no one who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Duke, Chicago, Stanford, if you go to like any of the big um, law firms. And then those law schools in turn really only use one thing to decide who they're admitting, and that's an LSAT score, right? So the question is, how good a proxy is an LSAT score for someone's ability as a lawyer? Now, that turns out to be a question that vanishingly little time has been spent on in the legal Mm -hmm. profession. Um, It's just taken for granted that it is a good proxy. But as you dig into it, you discover it's actually a terrible proxy. So I found a guy, for example, I did two fun things. One thing, this is... Sounds parenthetical, but it's actually a key to this. As some, I took the LSAT, and my first question was, you know what's really weird about it? Is that it's five sections, and each section is 35 minutes, and you have 25 questions in each section. Why is it, 20, why is it 35 minutes? Like, I mean, you would get a different result if you gave people 40 minutes mm-hmm. or 50 minutes. How did they settle on 35? Why are they so sure that the optimal ranking of people in terms of their ability as lawyers is achieved through a 35-minute time limit on each section of the LSAT. Um, if you go down to the people who administer the test, who create an and ask, who that, ask them that question, they don't really have an answer. Uh, if you talk to law firm recruiters, why are you so in love with people who do really well on a test that's limited to 35 minutes a section? They'll t- they don't really have an answer. <laughs> and if you say, well, what would happen if you made it 50 minutes a section, they don't really have an answer. So then I was chatting with this guy who's a world champion chess, uh, one of the best chess players in the world. And the people in chess have thought about this a lot because they have, there's many ways you can play chess. Classic chess, which is 90 minutes for the first 40 moves, then 30 minutes for the next. Then there's uh, uh, blitz chess, which is, I'm sorry, there's blitz chess, which is five minutes, bullet chess, which is one minute. Um, and then there's uh, what's called puzzle rush, which is even faster. And each time you change the time limit on the test, you get a different ranking of chess players. So there are chess players who are really good when they have lots of time. And there are chess players who are really good when they have very little time. There's only one name that appears on both lists, and that's Magnus Carlsen, because he's a genius. But everyone else, it's like this guy I was talking, he was really good when you speed it up, and not so good when you slow it down. And the only reason he's not considered the greatest chess player in the world, this guy's name is uh, uh, Nakamura, Hideki Nakamura, is that we have arbitrarily decided to award the title of best chess player in the world according to the uh, time limit of 90 minutes for the first 40 moves. If we decided that we would 
call the chess world champion the person who did the best in a five-minute game, mm -hmm. he would be either number two or number one in the world, right? right. So like in the, with the LSAT, if we arbitrarily decided to make it 50 minutes per section, different people would go get into Harvard and different people would then be hired by Skadden and the law firm would be filled, the elite law would be filled with a, with a different, yeah, different group of people. talent, mm -hmm. right? My point of going through this long, like, random tangential thing is, we have these systems in place to pick people, and they're not scrutinized. They're like... Accepted. They're just, we just take it for granted. Yeah. So there I was taking my LSAT, and I ran at a time on the logic games section. I got really angry. Why are they, why are they making me rush? And whose interest is it to make Malcolm Rush in the logic game section, right? Like, and by the way, I, there, this is a test in preparation for a profession that charges by the hour. <laughs> this is so irrational, right? They should want me to be slow and steady. Right? Like, so, like, so, and I thought, well, if, uh, now the legal profession is a profession that prides itself on being the most intellectual profession in the land. If the most intellectual profession in the land is so completely blind in terms of how they structure their entry, their, um, their, uh, their, their gatekeeping function, what about the rest of us, right? Yeah. Um, and I, and I, it really made me wonder whether there isn't, this isn't time for a kind of major reevaluation of, um, in every profession, mm -hmm. about where we find talent. Yeah. And I think when you, when you think about corporations, that's still very true. And people, when, when they talk about doing something different, it's like a really big deal, right? Um, do you see businesses examining that or do you see that what you just described, do you see that pretty, pretty resonant? Yeah. Well, I, I think the problem is most pronounced in elite businesses. Okay. That once you have identified yourself as being a kind of... Uh, top of the rung firm, you, you I think, fall prey to this, uh, fall into this trap of starting to narrow the selection of people, mm -hmm. the, the, the group of people who you're mm -hmm. willing to, um, to look at. Mm -hmm. um, that, and I think that's, that could be potentially uh, dangerous. Um, uh, and, uh, but, I, but I do think that, that, that there is... Um, like, for example, I was so impressed by my, for the longest time I've been impressed by this fact that there are, that we arbitrarily limit the pool of people we're willing to consider for a job. So for the last couple of years when I hire people, when I hire an assistant, I don't let them disclose, uh, I tell them beforehand, before they come and see me, that they should remove the name of their educational institution, all educational institutions, Names should be removed from the resume. And when, during the interview, they cannot mention or even hint at where they went to school. I don't want to know. Mm -hmm. But now I think this should be, everyone should do this. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be really useful. So I was chatting as part of my thing on the legal profession with this guy who's a very prominent judge. And he, uh, he was a Supreme Court clerk and the reason I called him up is that he went to Ohio State Law School. And if you know anything about the Supreme Court clerks, you'll know that no one from Ohio State Law School is ever a clerk on the Supreme Court. Like, <laughs> he is such an insane outlier. And I was so amazed. I was like, oh my God, this guy clerked for like Scalia and he went to Ohio State. How did that happen? Turns out it was an, by accident that 
Scalia inherited him from Lewis Powell, who had then retired, who hired this kid as a clerk, even though he was from Ohio State, because it's like he was retired, didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And then he got on the court, and he had nothing to do because he's working for a retired justice. So he went to Scalia and said, do you mind if I help you out? And Scalia's like, well, you went to Ohio State, but okay. And then (laughs) he turned to be the best clerk Scalia ever had. And then Scalia famously stood up one time at a speech, told the story and said, and the weird thing is I would never have hired him, and I still don't hire from anyone but Harvard and Yale, which is odd. He wouldn't even learn from this experience. So then I thought, well, wouldn't they be better off if everyone who ever applies for a clerkship on the Supreme Court has written a law review article? In other words, they have done the very thing that you are interested in um, that is that is necessary mm-hmm. to be a good clerk. Mm-hmm. So why do you need anything else? Why don't you just read their law review articles and see if they're good at it? And, you know, because there's going to be lots of people who went to fancy schools who are bad at it and lots of people who didn't go to fancy schools who are good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, that's, I, I kind of think, is there is there a way for other professions that this strikes me as being the next frontier in hiring, mm-hmm. that let's, let's accept the fact that we use those markers of talent when we didn't have other better ways of assessing right. people. And if we do have other ways of assessing people, the best thing to do is to get rid of, who cares right. whether you, you know, that at my podcast company, uh, our, first of all, I don't even know where most of my best people went to college because I know not asked them. And then I found out inadvertently, and it was like the most undistinguished school you've ever heard of. But this is my absolute, this is a woman who's my producer. She is 99th percentile. She is like the best there is. And she went to, I mean, does it matter? Like, and if I had known that, would it have biased me in some way? And I, I'm sort of haunted by this fact. Yeah. That, well, you know what's so ironic too, is I have, uh, having teenagers and I have one who's going to college, who's applying to colleges and, I, I don't remember it ever being this stressful when I was a teenager. So it, that's the ironic thing is now it seems like there's such a focus on mm-hmm. these GPAs that are like 8.6. I didn't think mathematically were possible. And then applying to these schools and, and, and the pressure yeah. that they feel. Um, I agree with you. And it's so counter to what you're just saying. But I do think that that's where, where people are looking to source talent and, and how to think differently about it. Here, here's the other interesting thing. The other weird thing about this is that we have an assumption, the second bad part of this uh, system is that we have assumption that we can make a, a, an accurate assessment of, uh, of someone's um, uh, potential at 22, right? That's, mm-hmm. the, that's what you're saying, or actually, pardon me, at 18. Yeah. We're saying that the decision that, that the, the person who lets you in at the age of 18 that that judgment that was made then is something that is of irrele- relevance when I'm hiring you when you're 25 or 30 right. or 35. And that's kind of crazy, yeah. right? Absolutely. Because there's an awful lot of people who, at the age of 18, they're, or, or 17, that's, right. the, the way they are then is not representative exactly. of the way they en- end up. In fact, um, lots of us <laughs> at the age of 30 bear no resemblance to our 17-year-old self. <laughs> right. Um, as it should be. Right. Um, if, in fact, I don't want to hang out with the person who is who at 17 is representative of the way they will be at 30. Right. right? right. I'd like to see some movement. 
<laughs> in that person. So it's a kind of a crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about leadership because much in the same way that we have to think differently about kind of talent and how we think about it. What I find interesting today is the the profiles of leaders and what they were 10, 20 years ago um, are changing. Mm-hmm. I think there's certain, th- in my opinion, there's certain things, certain traits, qualities that never go out of style. And then I think that there's traits and qualities that are becoming more and more valued um, and what you know, followers look for mm-hmm. in their leaders. Talk to me a little bit about how you see the profile of leadership evolving, changing. Yeah. You know, I, uh, se- several things come to mind. To continue on this, um, on my little law firm riff here, uh, I had a long conversation with these people at a law firm in Cincinnati called Frost Brown, um, which has taken a lot of these ideas to heart. And they sat down and they said, who, what are the leaders of our law firm like? So they're, first of all, they're, they asked the question specific to their own organization. They didn't ask, what are the leaders in the legal profession like? They said, what is Frost Brown about? What is our culture? And who's, who thrives here? And who are the people who we trust? In? And they said, a very specific kind of person thrives here. A person who is um, highly collegial. So we are a law firm that where everything is done in teams and the teams change, they're fluid. You are on one team for one project, another team another. So you must be able to move across disciplines. And the second thing is we are a highly entrepreneurial firm. We are flat. If you are waiting to get orders from your boss, you're not going anywhere in this firm. So when they go out and they look for people who they hope will populate their, be their future leaders, that's what they look for. And what they, the first thing they found was that once they had clarified what their culture was and what their leaders looked like, they started looking in very different places for it, when it came to hiring and hiring very different kinds of people. And they also discovered that even though they had known that's who they were, they had not been hiring that kind of person in the past. They had been this big disconnect between. So that, to me, is really interesting. And it's not that the, the two part, two interesting parts of that are, one, the, the idea that a definition of a leader changes from, organi- from culture to culture, mm-hmm. that there are probably 100 different kinds of leaders, and we need to define carefully what we mean in terms of our own institution. And the second thing is, you may know what you, what you, what, what you want in your, but unless you, in a very systematic, focused way, make a connection between what you want and what you actually go out and find, you won't, you won't do it. You won't do it. You won't do a good job. You'll fall back on old habits, and just hire. Their whole point was, you know, as an elite law firm, the habit we fell back on was hiring the kid with a high GPA from, you know, Stanford Law School, and we discovered lots of those people are not what we want. They're not. They can be brilliant, but they'll hand in their brilliantly written brief, and they'll go back and sit by themselves in their office, and they don't work here, right? That, so that was, that was one notion about um, that idea that there can be many different. Um, so, but the second part is um, I have found myself, when I think about personally mm-hmm. what leaders I have been uh, drawn to, what I'm really drawn to overwhelmingly more and more now is 
um, is humility. That that seems to be the one constant that I would say that in, in, you know, as the kind of environments in which we're working in get more complicated, um, we need to have leaders who who, uh, who respect that complication, right? Who understand that they can't know everything. They can. Mm-hmm. The most impressive person I have met, and I, this is, I must do something terrible. I cannot remember her name, <laughs> but I'll describe who she, who she is. She just left. She was the secretary of the Air Force until like, I think she's still there. She's about to leave. Does anyone know her name? Heather Wilson. Heather Wilson. Heather Wilson. I was at some a board meeting and she came to speak. And I have rarely in my life been so blown away by someone. It wasn't that she was charismatic or, so she is, but that's not what blew me away. She came in, she had, there were, it was a meeting where there were, in the room were previous secretaries of the Air Force. The first thing she did was go up to those people and pay her respects. Then she went around the room and found out who everyone in the room was. Then she gave a presentation in which she managed to both communicate what the challenges were that she was facing in the Air Force and also signal her deep respect for for the expertise of others in the room and her willingness to listen to what they had to say. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that is my model of 21st century leadership and I would, I don't, I don't even know whether, what her politics are, I care less. I would vote for her tomorrow if she ran for anything. Heather Wilson's getting an awesome shout out She's on this getting, podcast. But, <laughs> but here's the thing, I don't think that kind of person, I don't think her kind of person is rare. Mm-hmm. I think there's lots of people like that, mm-hmm. but I think we overlook them because of her modesty. Yes. She's not, you know, she, she, made, she made this comment, her previous, before she was Secretary of the Air Force, understand this is a woman who was a Rhodes Scholar, who has written right. brilliant books, who was a, she was the president of a very small college in South Dakota. And she was like, well, I didn't ask to be Secretary of the Air Force. I was very happy being mm-hmm. president of this college in South Dakota. You know, someone who says that kind of thing is not the kind of person who we normally anoint as, you know, as yes. the next great leader, right? She's... Mm-hmm. Just, she is someone who, I think she wasn't making that up. I think she was actually very happy doing that mm-hmm. because she is quite happy making a contribution on that scale far from the limelight. Yeah. But we have to, we have to reorient what we, when, as I say, we have to look for those kinds of people because they will not bang their own drum on their own. Right. And, well, and I think, uh, you know, when you think about um, some of the, new, the emerging talent in the workforce today, they want, they crave those kind that 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 authentic person who yeah. is humble and who is in service to other people, and um, but but many of us have grown up watching different profiles of leadership and and you have to I think that there's a shift happening right now and those leaders who are willing to be authentic vulnerable humble yeah are creating more of the followership that's my perspective. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about trust as since we're talking about leadership right. Um, Trust only becomes salient under catastrophic or extreme conditions. What do you mean by that? Uh, Well, uh, what was the financial crisis? The financial crisis was a crisis of trust. That we didn't realize that we couldn't trust the banking system until the banking system was under stress. It never even occurred to us to wonder whether these institutions were 
uh, strong, were well capitalized, made thoughtful decisions, had a, you know, a good understanding of the risks in the marketplace. Uh, and then it all fell apart. And all of a sudden, that was all we cared about, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can say that we should have been caring about that all the whole time, but that's just not the way we're wired. We have a, there's a, a phrase that uh, I write about this in my new book, um, uh, what's called default to truth, which is a psychological theory which says that for evolutionary reasons, we are hardwired to believe and trust in others. Um, we, being skeptical is not a natural human trait. It's rare that we're skeptical. We need to, it takes an awful lot for us to start to disbelieve or distrust someone. We need to be really, really pushed. Um, with some exceptions, some people are much more, but most of us, and we're that way for a reason. You can't function uh, in any kind of complex social environment if you, dis if you naturally distrust others. Um, so when we're finally, it takes an extreme circumstance for us to be pushed to the point where we finally say, I don't believe you, right? Think about, I once read, I don't recommend anyone do this, but <laughs> the SEC wrote a 600-page post-mortem on the Madoff case. Mm -hmm. If you are like incarcerated or something, you have a lot of time in your hands, <laughs> you should read it because it's unbelievable. Like basically what that's about is this. It's about this very thing. It's about like time and time again, it's this, there's this guy who has surreal returns mm -hmm. every single year, regardless of what happens, he makes 12%. And everyone's like, I, you know, that's, I mean, I don't know how he does that. And they all roll their eyes, right? And the SEC examiners show up and they go like, I mean, and then we pressed him on and he was like, I don't know, I'm really good at this, right? I'm like, they can't, we couldn't go upstairs. They can't go upstairs into the secret, like, I mean, I don't know what's going on up there. Like, Everybody, there's, a, there's this incredible moment, and I, I quote this in my book, where the guys at Renaissance te uh, mm -hmm. Technologies, the world's greatest hedge fund, and these guys are, they're not just smart. Each one of them is smart. They're like, it's like they lined up all of the geniuses they could find. They all got together and started a hedge fund. These guys are so smart. So they have a dealing with, they have a run-in, not a run-in, they do some complicated transaction, and they end up owning a big chunk of, Madoff's investment mm -hmm. fund mm -hmm. in years before he was busted. So these are geniuses. And they're like, they look at Madoff and they're like, yeah, it makes no sense. It's crazy. And they have this email exchange, which is quoted in the, and where they all say, oh my God, I can't, this is nuts. And they all say, I, we don't want any part of this. Like, Do they sell the steak? No. I'm like, yeah, it's probably okay. Right? So like, that's the way human yeah. beings are. It's only when, you know, remember Madoff, his sons turn him in. It's like, no one, no one. And then there was that guy, Harry Markopoulos, who keeps telling the SEC, and the SEC like rolled her eyes. Like that's the way we are, that when things finally get to some extreme moment, then we understand, oh, you know, trust is actually the foundational element of the world in which we're living. Um, now I should pay attention. Right. Um, but do so we? That, but do we learn from that? Well, we quickly lapse back into default yeah. truth um, because we don't have any choice. But what that... I think the lesson of this, though, is that um, this is why we have um, government. The job of government mm -hmm. is to be the kind of, um, to take care of the trust issue mm -hmm. um, and, to, and to make sure that rules are followed. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's really why we want regulators. And, um, and that's, a, you know, that clarifies, I think, 
wonderfully clarifies what the job of government is. Mm-hmm. Government sometimes strays from that and gets into trouble. But if they, if they understand that, no, 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 what you are is the umpire. You're the, you're the person to make sure that the rules are being followed and that the system can be trusted. And we are going to care about that once every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to be very thankful you're there once every 10 mm-hmm. years. That's, that's your job. So we live... Um we obviously all live in a world of wash and change, and whether it's populism or nationalism, how do you see what's going on? I mean, what are the what's what are some of the root causes of what you see of, of what we're witnessing right now? Yeah. Well, that's a vast question. A very broad um, question. I like a you know I'm 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 fond of some very very narrow, um, uh, nerdy things like the LSAT, but. Um, <laughs> The, well, I would say, you know, there's a couple of things that interest me a lot. One, um, that uh, There's a million ways to answer that question. I'm going to choose one. Okay. Which is, um, I wonder whether uh, the particular demographic moment that the West is in is under-theorized. So, um, we are, this is a moment when, uh, relative to the last... 50 years, the populations of the industrialized countries are very old and getting older. And that is not a trivial thing. So, for example, uh, rates of entrepreneurship, new business formation, are at their lowest levels right now in generations, right? They're, it's been uh, It's been decades since they were this low, which which is a hard thing for us to accept because we celebrate ourselves as the great. Actually, no, there are fewer businesses being formed now. There's a number of reasons for that, but one of the biggest big is generational, mm-hmm. that we're old. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you know, uh, a huge number of very, very productive people are now of retirement age, they're not, people aren't starting new businesses right. when they're winding down for retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other reasons that are actually quite significant, uh, you know, the decline of local banking has something to do with it. But I mean, a lot of that is about demographics. Um, but I wonder whether we are, we are also at a m- this moment in our history getting very fearful in ways that would be consistent with an aging society, right? Mm-hmm. We are mm-hmm. uh, in the same way, you know, um, I have an 86-year-old mother who is, knock on wood, in fine health and is uh, a brilliant woman. Um, she's 86. Her tolerance for, like, mm-hmm. rapid change is diminishing. It was mm-hmm. never great, I will say, <laughs> of my mother. Um, if you knew my mother, you would know she likes things to proceed at a, at a very leisurely pace. Um, not in a hurry. She's less in a hurry now than she was when she was young. Um, I suspect that's true of a lot of people mm-hmm. in their 80s. Um, you know, she has, uh, her life is as is the case of many older people, defined a lot by fear, increasingly. There's no way around that. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to grow old. So when I look sometimes at our society, I think of us as having some of the broader social symptoms of an aging population. Does that make me feel better or worse? It makes me feel a bit better, but actually, it makes me think, you know what, this is not a symptom of of some fundamental flaw Mm -hmm. in our society. It's a phase. We're in a, we're in a fearful phase. It's not going to last forever. These demographic 
trends coming. Right. You know, if you were in this country in 1968, when the baby boom was 25 years old, that was not a neurotic, fearful society. That was a vigorous, angry, spirited, riding every five minutes society. Mm -hmm. People were freaked out then too, mm -hmm. right? For a wholly different set of reasons. Mm -hmm. So we always, so I mean, I don't mean to, to reduce right. everything to one variable, but that's something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that, uh, that, you know, if you have, if you're in the demographic stage we're in, yep. then this is going yeah. to be part of the package. So I want to ask you um, one more question, then, and then I wanted to open it up for any questions that, that you all might have. You have a new book coming out. I do. Talking to Strangers. Tell us a little bit about, give us a, a sneak preview. Well, it's about uh, talking to strangers. Um, it's about why are we so bad at talking to strangers? So the idea is that, you know, if you think, to give a grand 50,000-foot view, if you go back... 600 years, almost every interaction any human being would have is with someone they know. They even knew their enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, the major battles of the 14th century are civil wars between people who knew each other intimately and hated each other in the way that you can only hate someone who you know really well, right? Um, <laughs> beginning in the age of discovery in the 16th century, you had this weird thing develop where you're suddenly confronting people and you have no clue who they are. You know, uh, Cortez goes to Mexico and meets Montezuma, and he didn't, doesn't speak his language. He sees this c city that he's never seen before, a culture he doesn't understand. I mean, it's kind of bananas moment where it's like, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is something completely outside. And that becomes the norm. And I think that we're still struggling with, what do we do with someone, uh, who, when we meet someone uh, for whom we have no frame of reference. And I think a lot of the book is really a series. I look at a bunch of contemporary Christ, um, uh, uh, crises, cases, that I think are all versions of this problem. So the book is, I talk about, you know, Amanda Knox, the Stanford mm -hmm. rape case, uh, the, Sandra, the death of Sandra Bland, uh, Bernie Madoff, mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of spy stories, um, on and on and on. They're all versions of this problem that we're asked to size up a stranger and we fail at the task. And I try and answer in the book, how can we get better at mm -hmm. that? Um, because I think um, a lot of, um, a lot rides on that question. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with, I don't want to give it away because then you, uh, answer. You can tell us a little bit more. A little, but uh, a lot of it has to do with um, being, uh, having a lot more humility in, our uh, estimation of how good we are at making sense of a stranger. I think we have to respect the fact that uh, you cannot know everything you need to know about a stranger um, in the first couple of times you meet mm -hmm. that person. Mm -hmm. um, you have to, you know, you have to uh, learn how to reserve judgment. You cannot have a, you know, I start and finish with the Sandra Bland case. Remember that case of the woman who's pulled over by a cop in Texas and they get into an argument because she lights a cigarette and she ends up in jail and then she hangs herself in the jail. And if you break that down, and I break that, down, that case down in great detail, it is fundamentally about the problem of a police officer confronting someone under ambiguous circumstances by the side of the road and being asked by his profession mm -hmm. 
to instantly make a series of highly consequential judgments about that person based on the flimsiest uh, evidence and the shortest amount of, mm -hmm. of, of, of um, interaction. Mm -hmm. And if you ask police officers to do that, then you're going to have catastrophic breakdowns. So what do you do? You have to stop asking police officers to do that. You have to construct a vision for law enforcement which limits those kinds of encounters. And that's not impossible to do. Mm -hmm. We know how to do that. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're so sure of ourselves and we're so sure we can send people out into the world and sum up a stranger in no time that we read, I have a whole chapter on the, what happens when two young people are at a party and they're both drunk? Because that is the scenario that leads to 95% of sexual abuse, uh, of, of sexual assault cases mm -hmm. rather, um, 95%. In fact, it might even be 99%. If you can find a, sexual, a campus sexual assault case mm -hmm. that does not involve alcohol, I will pay you $1,000. Mm -hmm. um, and what people have not understood is what alcohol does to the process of making sense of a stranger, that it fundamentally impairs our ability to understand. If I'm a man and you're a woman and we're 18 and I'm already, you know, immature, I have raging hormones, I've not met you before, we're at a party, and now you add to the fact that I am blind drunk and you are blind drunk, that is highly problematic, right? right? Mm -hmm. And bad things happen under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And if you wanna have a conversation about uh, sexual assault on campus, you have to have a conversation about alcohol, mm -hmm. right? And we don't wanna have the conversation. Right. We wanna pretend these are separate issues. And the kind of drinking that is happening now on college campuses does not resemble the kinds of drinking that happened on college campuses in your generation or mine. It is of um, it is an order of magnitude more serious. Yeah. And in high school and in junior high school. And in high school and in junior high school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a dangerous drug. Mm -hmm. um, it's now fashionable to pretend that dangerous drugs are not dangerous, but it's dangerous, yeah. trust me, right? Hi everyone, it's Jennifer Morgan, and you've been listening to A Call to Lead. I hope you enjoyed part one of my live podcast with Malcolm Gladwell. We went to the audience next for questions, which were fantastic, and we'll release that content in a bonus pod in the coming days. As always, I'm grateful for your feedback and for tuning in. Talk to you soon.